0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of All My Movies. As I announced a few weeks ago, this is the final edition of the show during my agreement with Skybound and the Schmodown Entertainment Network, so we will discuss what that means for the future of the show at the end of the episode. But before we get there, we've been talking all month about some of my favorite movies. That's been the theme for this month. And we are talking about one of my most favorite recent movies this week, Ari Aster's debut theatrical feature, Hereditary, which was released in 2018. We're going to get into one of my favorite performances of all time and really deconstruct the movie, reconstruct it really from the beginning all the way to the end to piece together how Ari Aster told this story. It's one of my favorite movies to break down and I haven't really done a full analysis of the movie until now. It's a lot of fun and I can't wait to do this with you. But before we do that, this is usually where I say thank you for watching and I do thank you for watching. And if you still want to subscribe to the audio podcast feed of this show. There are still over 40 episodes there that you can go back and listen to. Regardless of where the show is going to go from here, new episodes won't be coming out on the existing audio podcast feed, but I would still love to have your support there and to go back and listen to that library. And as I mentioned, we'll be talking about the future of the show at the end of the show. But I also want to thank Skybound and the Schmodown Entertainment Network for helping me get this show off the ground. I don't know if I could have done it without them, and even though I will be continuing the show on past this point, I owe a great debt of gratitude to them for everything that they've done so far. But without further ado, let's get into Hereditary, which is the brainchild of director Ari Aster. It was his debut feature after he made several short films, and he was drawn to a dark story about family trauma. Ari Aster actually didn't originally set out to make Hereditary as a horror film necessarily, but found himself drawn to the genre by a combination of realism and necessity, as he explained to an audience at this Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF
1: Talk. Some people don't recover. Um, sometimes something so, sometimes something horrible happens or a succession of horrible things happen and people are taken down. I could try to make that as a drama um, and then you know like one good luck finding financing and then two good luck recouping that if I if I somehow do find financing. What is a deterrent in one genre for an audience some you know suddenly becomes a virtue in another and that's what's beautiful about the horror genre is that it, it's this filter through which you can push material that's maybe otherwise like too bleak or too upsetting. Hereditary is a remarkably well-balanced story.
0: Each one of the main characters plays an integral role in the unfolding of the story. And to play the lead role of Annie, the matriarch of the family, who is a mother of two children and a miniaturist, Ari Aster went to Oscar nominee Toni Collette, who ironically, in securing what may be her darkest role ever, was looking for the exact opposite kind of parts to play.
2: You know, I had said to my agent, I don't want to do anything intense or heavy. I had done quite a bit of that and I just wanted to do comedies and have fun. And then he sent this to me and I was like, screw you. (laughs) Um, Because I love it. I love the story so much. I couldn't put it
0: down to play Steve Annie's husband who desperately attempts to keep the family from falling apart Gabriel Byrne was cast
1: are you uh, are you coming down to dinner I'm making dinner oh, I made the dinner I came to get you. Come, stay, whatever you want. I don't
0: really give a shit. And an interesting fact about this character that I actually didn't know until watching the behind the scenes feature out of the movie is that according to Tony Collette, Steve was actually Annie's therapist who then transitioned into a relationship with her once he stopped seeing her professionally. So
2: she met her husband Steve, played by Gabriel, uh, when he was her psychiatrist. When they stopped working together, he continued to care for her. And continued a deeper
0: relationship. Now, this isn't established in the film, but it makes sense given the relationship that we see on the screen. As Annie slips slowly and slowly into what seems like madness, Steve grows more and more frustrated that he can't clinically pull her out of the spiral that she's in. As the daughter of the family, Charlie, Millie Shapiro was cast. Shapiro was already a show business veteran. She had won great acclaim for playing Matilda on Broadway. And as Peter, Charlie's older brother, actor Alex. Wolf joined the cast. And the dynamic between these two characters is crucial to the first act of this movie. And in order to get that dynamic right, Ari Aster took an unconventional approach by sending the two actors out into the real world in character.
3: We went on like four or five outings to just um, complete a random task. And we'd do them completely in character and it lasts like an hour or two. Then we'd be at a restaurant. I'd be like, oh, okay, what do you want? She would just look at the menu. I'm like, okay. Charlie, what do you want? What do you want? And then suddenly you start to have these resentments because you're like, sorry and you're apologizing on behalf of her. Automatically you have that sort of like, oh, my little sister and all these different things but then we have this intimacy because we're holding hands crossing the street and, I mean, that stuff can just be invaluable to this kind of a movie.
0: Alex Wolfe took this method approach a step further, staying in character throughout the entire production. A process that had unintended consequences.
1: I didn't talk to him as Alex from the first day of shooting to the last. And on the last day of shooting he introduced himself to the whole crew as Alex for the first time. It was like a dangerous level of commitment. I just
3: didn't understand what it would do to your psyche or
0: whatever. For Ari Aster, character was the most important aspect of the film because he recognized that the horror genre isn't appealing to people necessarily because of the scares,
1: it's appealing because you care about the characters. This was always a film that was a family drama first, so I wanted to make a film that was very firmly rooted in this very complicated family dynamic. It was always just very important to me that These were people that you cared about so that when things happen to them, it's not just spectacle, but it feels like a betrayal.
0: Hereditary was shot in early 2017 in Utah, both on location and on sound stages. And this is largely because after doing a lot of location scouting, it was determined that there was not a house that would be able to accommodate the needs of the production, at least not to be able to shoot the movie the way that Ari Aster wanted to shoot it. So there were exteriors done of the family home, and then the entire family home was constructed on a soundstage to allow for maximum flexibility in shooting a lot the complex camera setups that were needed for the film. Usually when I get into talking about a movie, I go through the story beat by beat, we sort of explore it together from beginning to end, but because of the nature of this movie, I'm gonna do things a little bit differently here. Let's start with what Hereditary is really about. Let's talk about this right up front, and then let's go through the movie and deconstruct it beat by beat, just to show how Ari Aster was able to weave this tale, something that really kind of pulls the wool over your eyes the first time, but on second viewings and subsequent viewings, you really are able to see very crystal clear just exactly what was going on. So fair warning, if you haven't seen Hereditary, I would, uh, please, I would plead with you, go watch the movie before watching this episode, come back, and then let's deconstruct the film. Because I can promise you, if you've never seen this movie before, the first thing you're gonna wanna do after the credits roll is to deconstruct this thing piece by piece. Hereditary is about the Graham family as it slowly crumbles. Annie Graham's mother, Lee, dies, and in the wake of this grief, Annie's daughter, Charlie, begins having strange visions. That is, until Charlie is tragically killed in a car accident that happens while her brother, Peter, is driving. As the family begins to implode, Annie turns to a new friend of hers named Joan, who instructs her on how to channel Charlie's spirit. But after Annie does this, strange things begin to happen, and we as the audience begin to wonder how much of this is real and how much of this may be in Annie's head. At least until it's revealed that Annie's late mother was the leader of a cult seeking to summon a demon named Paimon. The demon was originally placed in Charlie when she was a child, but she was killed in order for it to be transferred to the more ideal body of her older brother, Peter. And the movie ends with Peter's body being taken by Payman, and we understand that this family never stood a chance as their entire lives were being manipulated by this cult to a tragic end. It is a very disturbing and dark story, which is exactly the effect that Ari Aster was going for when he crafted Hereditary.
1: One of the first things I told everybody in the crew was that I wanted the film to feel evil. It's about this long-lived possession ritual that's like everything's coming to a head, but it's told from the perspective of the sacrificial lambs. Mm -hmm. Knowing this, let's dive into the movie, keeping in
0: mind as we deconstruct this, that for a first-time viewer, all the stuff about the cult and the demons and everything else, you have no idea about any of this going in. We open on Annie's mother's obituary, which is the inciting incident of the film, and then the next shot we see is the treehouse where the movie will end. So right here at the very beginning, we have the beginning of these events and the end of these events. Ari Aster is already showing you how his story begins and how it's going to end. We then zoom into what appears to be one of Annie's miniatures, but what we then realize once her husband Steve walks into the door is actually her son Peter's room. And this is a great visual effect for a couple of reasons. Number one, it just looks really good. But the other thing is that on first glance, it appears to just be a very stylistic piece of flair. But when you go back and look, it actually works as a metaphor for this entire family's life. They have no life of their own. They are the playthings of a much
1: larger power. I, I wanted to have this feeling that there was something omniscient going on. You get that in the first scene. A metaphor is set up there. Um that you know that these people are like dolls in a dollhouse that they have no agency
0: at her mother's funeral annie comments on both her mother's privacy and the unfamiliar faces in the audience
2: it's heartening to see so many strange new faces here today my mother was a very secretive and private woman she had private rituals Private friends.
0: This is another small touch that works in two ways. Initially, it seems to be an indication of Annie's distance and estrangement from her mother. But then when you go back and watch again, it's an early indication that Annie was completely unaware that her mother was the leader of a cult and that all of the people in attendance at the funeral just about were members of the cult. While viewing the body, Charlie first sees the cult symbol around her grandmother's neck, we'll later learn what that means, and then sees a strange man smiling at her. We'll see this man again at the end of the movie, only this time he will be smiling at Peter. Keeping in mind at this point that Charlie is currently the host for payment and is a very revered figure to the cult. It's not until later in the film that Peter will be the one to earn their reverence. After the funeral, Charlie and Annie talk before bed, and this is another conversation that's loaded with meaning that you really catch the full intention of on a rewatch.
2: You know you were her favorite, right? Even when you're a little baby, she wouldn't let me feed you because she needed to feed you.
0: This seems to be a reference to the controlling nature of Annie's mother, but we later understand that this is likely part of the ritual to put payment into Charlie's body as a young child. We see one of Annie's miniatures just a few moments later that depicts this scene.
2: She wanted me to be a boy. You know, I was a tomboy when I was growing
0: up. This fact is also hugely significant because we find out later that the ideal vessel for payment is a male body, but for reasons that we're going to learn later on, Annie's mother did not have access to her older son, Peter, when he was born and thus was forced to choose Charlie. And yet again, we have a line of dialogue that just seems to be an indication that Annie's mother was overbearing, but is actually a clue that something far more sinister is going on. Later, Annie finds a note in her mother's things that says not to despair their losses and that the family sacrifices will all be worth it. Something else that really means a lot when you go back knowing what you know at the end of this movie. And then we have a moment that I I love the ambiguity of it. Annie turns out the light, and in the corner of the room, she sees an apparition of her mother. And this is one of the places where I think the movie masterfully blends the psychological and the supernatural, because in my opinion, and, and, and I love that this is up for interpretation. Of all the actual paranormal or whatever you want to call them events in this movie, I don't think this is one of them. I actually think that this is an apparition, that this is a manifestation of Annie's guilt over her mother's death. I think this is one of the few events that doesn't have a supernatural explanation, but it's great that you can have these discussions about the movie and that the movie trusts you enough to be able to come to your own determinations about these things and doesn't explain every single detail. We catch up with Peter at school and the class is having a discussion of Harry Heracles and the concept of predestination and a tragic ending, which is in itself ironic because it's a situation that
1: Peter doesn't realize he's already in. Heracles never had any choice, right? So does that make it more tragic or less tragic than if he has a choice?
0: Charlie cuts the head off of a bird that flies into the classroom window, and this is loaded with symbolism for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's literal foreshadowing how Charlie's going to die with her head being removed. Also, there's a motif in this movie of decapitated heads, and the idea of a bird's head is an image that we're going to see several other times throughout the film. I also think that it's metaphorical to what Charlie's fate is going to be, because like this bird, she runs headlong into an obstacle that she did not place there that ultimately causes, through no fault of her own, the end of her life. After a scene where we learn that Annie's mother's grave has been desecrated, which will pay off later, we get to one of the key scenes of the film, and it is a brilliant monologue from Toni Collette. At first, this seems like a big exposition dump, as she tells this grief therapy group about her family's history of mental illness, but when you understand the context of what she's saying, what we really come to understand is, this is evidence that the cult has had their hooks in Annie's family for decades. After explaining that her mother suffered from Dissociative Identity Disorder, DID, Annie also explains the strange fate of her father.
2: My father died when I was a baby from starvation uh, because he had psychotic depression. And he starved himself, which I'm sure was just as pleasant as it sounds
0: This is the first example of the ill fate that male members of Annie's family will suffer And I thought that there are two explanations for this Number one, perhaps Annie's father was targeted by the cult And something went wrong with the possession causing him to starve himself to death A second explanation could be that Annie's father discovered what his wife, Annie's mother, was doing And was starved by Annie's mother and or the cult in order to hide the truth about what was going on This is an intriguing. intriguing possibility. And again, this is kind of a choose your own adventure book sometimes with these movies. That's the avenue that I think is an interesting one to go down.
2: My older brother had schizophrenia and when he was 16, he hanged himself in her mother's bedroom, and of course, his suicide no-blamed her, accusing her of putting people inside him.
0: This is an especially key sentence, because we know that Annie's mother was attempting to put the demon payment into a male member of Annie's family, and so the idea that Annie's brother killed himself because his mother was trying to put people inside of him means that she was likely attempting to put payment into Annie's brother, it was rejected somehow, he killed himself, and so now she was on the hunt for a new vessel for payment, which is how Annie's family became involved in this whole ordeal. And it's here that the title hereditary also really comes into play because at first glance, it seems like it may be a reference to mental illness. The fact that Annie's father had it, Annie's mother had it. Throughout the film, you're wondering, is this being passed down to Annie? Did Annie pass it down to her children? Is this something that is literally hereditary in the family? But then when you know what's actually going on, you understand that hereditary also refers to the demon payment, the fact that payment is passed down to different members of the family. So it also works on that level, and at the same time when you look at the superstructure of the movie itself, metaphorically it is about the grief, the trauma, the illness that is passed down from generation to generation in a family, when a family goes through very difficult times. And the fact that the movie works on all of these levels, it's such a rich movie to dig your teeth into. It's one of my favorite movies for this exact reason
2: until my husband finally enforced a no contact rule which lasted until i got pregnant with my daughter i didn't let her anywhere near me when i had my first my son which is why I gave
0: her my daughter, who she immediately stabbed her hooks into. This fact is important because it explains why Peter was not picked as the vessel for payment from the very beginning. Annie's husband forbade contact with Annie's mother, and so Charlie, Annie's younger child, was the one that Annie's mother was able to see, was able to perform the rituals on, was able to feed everything that had to be done, and yet this was an imperfect form, as we will learn later in the movie, and it needs to be corrected, which is the process that we see for the rest of the movie. I also don't wanna let Toni Collette's performance get lost in the shovel here because she is brilliant in this scene and quite frankly, every scene in this movie. And you really feel in this meeting, the weight that's already on her shoulders because she feels the pressure and the eyes of her family on her as if it's her fault that all of these things happened to her and that she's bringing them to the table. It's really a, a crushing performance.
2: And then I realize that I am to blame. Or not that I'm to blame, but I am blamed.
0: underscore that the family's being watched there's a scene where Peter's smoking weed in his room and we see that he's being watched from the treehouse now I tried to do like a Zapruder film thing here and and zoom into the treehouse window you can't really see it looks like there's something in the window but you can't really tell what it is this could be Charlie we know that Charlie likes to go up to that treehouse and sleep at night but I prefer to think that it's a cult member just because it's not really established who it is and I think it's a lot creepier that way the next scene finds Charlie building a custom figurine while clucking Her tongue, this is a sound that will become synonymous with payment. And then we see a shimmering light that will also become the visual representation of payment it draws Charlie outside with her severed bird head a very important piece of symbolism and she sees a vision of what I believe to be her grandmother sitting next to the fires perhaps of hell we don't really get an explanation of this vision because Charlie is then pulled back inside by Annie but this is where I think we see the full influence of payment being felt I think that Charlie is fully possessed in this moment she's drawn to create these little figurines she's drawn outside to see this vision and who knows what she would have seen if she wasn't interrupted but i love that this scene also works on two levels because you can tell that charlie is a very unique little girl and the first time through when you're watching this you do start to wonder is this her own sort of mental illness beginning to manifest is it something that is an influence from her mother you don't know what this is until you watch the movie a second time then we get to the most shocking part of the movie and i've seen this with an audience twice and both times an audible gasp followed by dead silence went through the crowd Charlie accompanies Peter to a high school party where she eats a cake that contains nuts, something that she is literally deathly allergic to. Are you
3: okay? It's hard to breathe.
0: As her throat begins to close, Peter runs, carries her out to the car, and tries to speed to the hospital. Charlie is clutching at her throat, gasping for air. She rolls down the window just trying to get a breath and sticks her head out. At this exact moment, Peter sees an animal on the road and swerves to avoid it, at the worst possible time, Charlie's head collides with a telephone pole and she is instantaneously decapitated. Peter, in complete shock, simply drives home and waits for his mother to make the horrific discovery the next morning. Ah! This is probably the most speculated, most discussed part of the film because so much of the conversation is around how much of it was planned, and if it's not planned, how could the cult have assured that any of this was going to happen? We know that they're involved because as Peter and Charlie drive to the party, we see the cult symbol carved into the telephone pole that eventually will take Charlie's head off. But at the same time, there are events at the party that they couldn't control. For example, Charlie eating the cake, or there even being a cake with nuts in it at this party. And I think that this is really an indication when we talk about fate and predestination, the fact that this family's choices were not their own, I think extends here. There are supernatural forces at work and Charlie is doomed to perish one way or another. So why does Charlie eat a cake with nuts in it knowing that she's allergic? Maybe it's a simple accident. Maybe it's payment taking over a little bit of control of her body and making her do this in order to place her in a position to have the sacrifice be made. The same goes with the animal that was Placed on the road that causes Peter to swerve? Was it placed there by the cult or was it just an unfortunate animal that happened to be in the middle of the road? Is it a combination of both? We know that there's a cult, they've been performing rituals, and that part of this ritual was for Charlie to die. And this is the tragedy of this movie. It's not so much that the cult made her die, it's that no matter what anyone in this family did, something bad was going to happen to Charlie. Something bad was going to happen to all of them. And I think that's what happens. I think that the way that things work is almost a final destination-like sequence of events. Things happen the way they did because that's the way they had to happen because the cult has manifested these events in order to raise this demon and find the ideal host. The impact of Charlie's death is really felt through Alex Wolf's brilliant performance. He's stunned into inaction, he's unable really even to look at what happens, and then he slowly leaves the scene of the accident, and we see him. We're on his face. We never see Tony Collette's moment of seeing what actually happened to Charlie. We only stay on Alex Wolf's face, and it really does drive home the kind of damage that this is doing, not just to the family, but to Peter as a character. It's a masterful performance from Wolf, and it was driven by a desire on his part as an actor to tap into the genuine ways that a person would react to this kind of trauma and grief as he explained to the youtube channel build series
3: movies in general i feel like especially teenagers are not given uh the opportunity to be flawed and to you know repress emotions and i and and in my opinion I don't know what I would have done in this situation, and I don't know that I would have done anything differently. And, and I think with this particular character who smokes so much weed and who uh, is such a, you know, uses tactics to kind of numb himself, I don't know what else he would have done.
0: I'll continue breaking down Hereditary in just a few moments, but first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Monk Pack, who makes snacks that taste like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars contain one gram or less of sugar, two to three grams of net carbs, and are only 150 calories. They're great for people that are trying to eat better, cut back on those calories, or just have an overall healthier lifestyle without sacrificing taste. What's great is that I can keep these bars in the pantry right with everything else that tastes great. I can grab one. I love all of the flavors and it is satisfying. It fills me up. It's a quick eat. It's healthier than most everything else that I would have grabbed for anyway. And it's something that can keep me going throughout the day they also come in great flavors like sea salt dark chocolate caramel sea salt and peanut butter dark chocolate that one is my favorite the combination of those two flavors with the great texture is really what i go for but you really can't go wrong no matter which flavor you choose no matter what your situation is it's a great snack on the go and they are gluten-free plant-based and non-gmo with no soy trans fat sugar alcohols or artificial colors And if you take a liking to one of the flavors like I have, you can also sign up to get subscribed to your favorite flavor so that you never run out. And if you do that, you get 10% off of every order that you subscribe to to keep you restocked with snacks that are healthy and make you feel good. Try it for yourself and you'll see. And I have a special deal for my listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting MonkPack.com and entering our promo code MOVIES at checkout. And Monkpack is so confident with their product, it's backed with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. To get started, just go to monkpack.com. That's m u n k p a c k.com and select any product. Then enter the code MOVIES at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monkpack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on, and I'd like to thank them for sponsoring the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something out there that's interfering with your happiness or keeping you from achieving the goals that you want to achieve? I know a lot of times I'm so focused on doing everything out there that I need to do that I'm not worried about myself. Mental health is a very important thing and it's critically important that you seek out the help that you need for your specific needs. BetterHelp is a service that will assess your personal needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist online. And usually you can start your communication with these therapists in under 48 hours. Now this is not a crisis line, this is not self-help, this is professional counseling done securely online. There is a broad range of expertise that may not be available in many local areas and BetterHelp is a resource that is available worldwide plus you can log in anytime and securely message your therapist 24 hours a day seven days a week with BetterHelp, you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses from the counselor you're matched to and you can schedule weekly video or phone appointments you don't have to go to waiting rooms like you do with traditional therapy it's all done online BetterHelp's also committed to making sure the match that you get is right for you which means that you can change counselors anytime you want for free and it's more affordable than traditional therapy and financial aid is available for those who need it. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a better life today and you can visit their website right now and read the testimonials that are posted there daily. Visit betterhelp.com/movies. That's betterhelp h e l p and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states to meet the need. And there's a special offer for viewers and listeners to this show. All My Movies listeners get 10% off their first month if you go to betterhelp.com movies. That's betterhelp, hel dot movies. And I want to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring today's show.
2: I wish I could take that away for you. I wish I could shield you from the knowledge that you did what you did. But your sister is dead!
0: Tony Collette's performance of Annie's uncontrollable grief at the loss of Charlie is one of the most disturbing aspects of the movie. It's one of the things that stayed with me the most after seeing the film. And it's also an indication that this family has crossed a threshold. They will never again be made whole from what's just happened. If the Graham family was in trouble before, they're doomed now. For Peter, the guilt begins to manifest in depression and panic attacks. He suffers what I think is a psychosomatic response the next time he tries to smoke weed, thinking that he's suffering the same allergic response as Charlie did and it makes sense that he would connect those two things. That's what he was doing at the time Charlie ate the cake and it's understandable why his body and his mind would react to that kind of stimuli. Annie thinks about returning to grief therapy, but just as she's about to change her mind, she's flagged down by a woman named Joan who seems to be a sympathetic ear with a in common with Annie, but turns out to be a key member of the cult who's looking to ensure that Payman finds its new body. You can see Joan's mask slip just a little bit and it's a great performance by Anne Dowd throughout the film when it looks like Annie is going to spurn her attempts at friendship and Joan just dumps her trauma right into Annie's lap.
2: Would you like to come in with me? I'm sorry, really, I, um, I, I can't, I, I really did forget something. My son died.
0: This is also another occurrence with the family of a cult member, where multiple male members of the family have died.
2: My son and my grandson drowned four months ago. The little one was seven.
0: And you have to wonder she talks about the fact that this happened four months ago it's also referenced that Annie's mother died a few months ago maybe Joan tried to put payment into the members of her own family but they were killed as punishment and as a sign that you cannot switch family lines they must go into a member of the Graham family one of Annie's children perhaps this is also why they renewed their efforts to kill Charlie to recruit Peter to recruit Annie a few months after the death of her mother they're returning to to the Graham family because that's their only avenue. The cult continues to insinuate itself into the life of the Grahams. We see a flyer for an open seance pushed into the Graham's mail slot. Note that the other mail is already there. So this is delivered by somebody else and also that they don't actually go to this open seance. This is the same thing that Joan is going to later recruit Annie in person to do.
2: They were performing an open seance. I know, I know what you're thinking, but they asked me to attend.
0: And I love this little touch, it just goes to show you that they're, they're trying things that we don't even see to manipulate this family into the tragic sequence of events that's going to happen. One of the most clear-cut examples of supernatural events affecting the family is also a very small one. Andy's working on one of her miniatures, she reaches for a bottle of paint, and another bottle of paint that's near it turns over. Now if you watch this scene very closely, nothing touches this bottle of paint. It looks like Annie is at least close enough that she might think that she knocked it over, but it falls over on its own. And when it falls over, the paint spills onto the piece of paper with Joan's number. It reminds Annie to call Joan. It leads to their first meeting, which leads to the events that happen in the rest of the movie. And this, I think, supports the idea that Charlie wasn't directly killed by the cult, but that whatever the cult does causes things to happen, because this is a direct manifestation of supernatural events, obviously driven by what the Cult is trying to achieve. Annie visits Joan to unload some of her burdens and notices a familiar-looking welcome mat. Another sign that there is a hidden connection at play.
2: Your welcome mat. Ah, oh, it's kind of cute, huh? Yeah, my mother used to embroider ones just like that. Did she really? Isn't that funny?
0: Things boil over for the Graham family at dinner, and Tony Collette should have won the Academy Award for this scene alone.
2: All I do is worry and slave and defend you, and all I get back is that f***ing face on your face!
0: Peter's guilt, Annie's resentment, and Steve's ineffective peacekeeping all collide in one explosive confrontation that will leave the family shattered.
2: But you can't take responsibility for anything! So now I... I can't accept, and I can't forgive, because nobody admits anything they've
0: done! Later, as Annie shops for art supplies, she runs into Joan, who just happens to be in the parking lot, and Joan recounts reconnecting with her dead grandson, Louis, through an open seance. And she encourages Annie to come to her apartment and see this evidence, to see this reconnection that she's gotten with her deceased loved one.
1: I heard his
0: voice. I felt his presence in the room. Annie, this is real and this is really where you see, and this goes into the real world, just how easy it is for nefarious people for malicious people to take advantage of those who are grieving of those who are weak because you prey on their hopes and dreams we see how shattered Annie is by the death of Charlie how any attempt at reconnection would be one that she was interested in and we also see just how evil this cult is, that they will exploit any weakness in this family in order to get their foot in the door. Joan and Louis, who I'm pretty sure is Payman, then put on a show for Annie, and Joan gives Annie a ritual that she says is the open seance in order to summon Charlie's spirit, but that we actually learn is a ritual to unlock Payman's spirit, essentially to allow it free to inhabit Peter. Note how Joan makes sure to tell Annie specifically that her entire family must be present when she does this ritual.
2: Your whole family, every member needs to be in the house. Your son. Everyone. Very important.
0: Annie decides to perform the ritual and off screen makes first contact with a spirit that she believes to be Charlie. And I think having her contact the spirit for the first time off screen is a great move because the first time through, especially as an audience, we don't really know what's going on. I'm a
2: medium, okay? I I was seeing apparitions earlier and I just shook them off and I shouldn't have. Please, I know how it sounds, but there's no way to talk about it. I just need to show you, okay? Please, you'll see.
0: Also notice that when Annie first channels Charlie for the family, Peter is the only one that feels a noticeable change in the room. The ritual has been completed and the possession has begun.
3: What the hell? What? You don't feel that? What? Feel what?
0: Like, you don't feel the air flexing? The next day in class, Peter sees the shimmering light that we know represents payment, and then has a hallucination, a very creepy visual of himself, smiling back in the reflection in this counter at class. Then he begins to suffer from the same auditory hallucinations, or at least they seem like hallucinations, that his mother has been, the clicking sound that Charlie made. (laughs) Yes, Peter. Convinced that she's cursed her family by doing the seance, Annie attempts to burn Charlie's sketchbook, which is the item that she used to channel Charlie's spirit. But when she tries to put it in the fireplace, Annie herself catches fire. Annie tries to find Joan at her apartment, but she's not there. And this is where we really begin to see the strings that are being pulled because we see inside the apartment, there are candles burning. We see the cult symbol against the wall. There are pictures of Peter throughout the apartment. And then we see what looks to be the same figurine that Charlie was building in class at the beginning of the movie. It has the bird head on top. And so the question then becomes, how did they get this figurine? I suppose there are really two possibilities. Number one, this was payments and Influence and Charlie was seeing a vision of the same kind of figurines that the cult was building, or another option, which is just as creepy, is that somebody from the cult broke into the family home and took the figurine from Charlie's room. Later, we see Joan across the street from Peter's school, yelling at him and telling him to get out.
1: Peter! Get out!
0: This is another example where I think that Ari Aster mixed the supernatural with just the creepy because I think when Charlie looked across the street and saw the woman waving at her, that was an actual woman that was watching Charlie at school. Here, I don't think that Joan is physically present at the school because nobody else around Peter seems to notice what's going on. I actually think we're jumping backwards in time just a little bit and that we're actually seeing the ritual that we saw the aftermath of in Joan's apartment, a ritual that she was perhaps doing by herself or that the cult was doing in her apartment together. Get Peter's spirit out of his body. One of the words, Satany,
3: I expel you
0: is the same word that we see scrawled on Charlie's bedroom wall earlier in the movie. Perhaps this was put on Charlie's wall by her grandmother when she was a baby to get her spirit out of her body. Annie learns what's going on when she takes a look at her mother's belongings, finding a book about payment the god of mischief, which notes that he's covetous of a male body. There are also illustrations of riches to the conqueror of the demon, and a note that the demon will possess the most vulnerable host. Hence, Charlie as a baby, Annie later on in the movie, and 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 finally, Peter. There's also a note that there's a ritual that's required to unlock the spirit. We've just seen that ritual, the one that summoned Charlie, and then another ritual to lock the spirit into its new host. Annie then sees pictures of her mother being given what I think are the riches that are given to the Conqueror. And she sees that Joan is there and realizes that Joan has been in on this from the very beginning. She's wrapped up in whatever her mother is doing. Later Annie finds her mother's decapitated corpse in the attic of the family home. with the cult symbol written on the wall in blood. Annie at her most desperate shows Steve her mother's body in the attic, but just when his understanding needs to be at his greatest, Steve's patient wears out. Annie pleads with Steve to throw Charlie's journal into the fire, wanting to sacrifice herself and Steve's not having any of it. I'm not going to do this with you anymore. What? No, no, no. No, no, it's not helpful. You, You are sick, Annie. Annie throws the book into the fire herself, and Steve bursts into flames, immediately killing him. Annie, I think, loses what little is left of her sanity, and then we see the shimmering light pass over her, and she has now been inhabited by the demon Paimon. We then see a smash cut from day to night outside the family home. And note that when we go tonight, there is a circle of cult members that's surrounding the house. We then cut into Peter's room. He's there recovering from the attack that he put on himself, basically, earlier at school that day. And we see the treehouse again, and we see that glow coming from the window. But note that this is a little bit of a different glow. Before, we saw this artificial red glow that came from the heat lamp for when Charlie and then later his mother would go up and sleep in the treehouse This is a warm glow, but it's the glow of candlelight because they've already lit the candles in the treehouse for the ritual that's going to take place in just a few minutes. Then comes a really chilling moment that's great to watch with a first time audience because Ari Aster locks the camera off and gives you time to see Annie in the corner of Peter's bedroom, perched above him in a very unnatural way. You know that something is very wrong with Annie at this point. And again, I like that, number one, this doesn't end in some kind of a jump scare. As a matter of fact, in the Next scene, Annie just sort of supernaturally floats out of the shot. But this is such an effective scare, and it just goes to show you that in a great horror movie, you don't need things that jump out at you. Sometimes it's the subtle things that become nightmare fuel. And I love the fact that if you sit in an audience and just let this shot play out, it's like waves, waves of people, and you can hear them discover that they see Annie up in this corner, and it's it's a, it's a that great combination of being scared and then that nervous laughter. It really is a great cinematic moment. If you ever get a chance to see Hereditary with an audience, I recommend it. We then hear the piano crash downstairs. This is a foreboding of Annie's eventual method of decapitation. She cuts off her own head with one of the piano wires. Peter discovers his father's corpse downstairs. Then the smiling man from the funeral makes another appearance in a doorway of the home, now naked, as are almost all of the other cult members, then Annie emerges and chases Peter up into the attic where he sees pictures of himself with the eyes gouged out. There are also cult members that are up in the attic. You can see one of them in the background as Peter is walking in. But even more horrifying, Peter looks up to see his mother floating at the roof of the attic, decapitating herself with a piano wire. This is followed by another reveal of even more smiling cult members. Peter freaks out and sprints out the attic window, falls to the ground, and then we see the shimmering light of payment finally settle down onto Peter's body and go inside him, finally finding its new host. Peter takes on Charlie's tongue cluck and then follows his mother's floating decapitated body into the treehouse. There he finds a statue that is topped by Charlie's decapitated head, or more accurately, her face, crowned with the crown that we've seen drawn on the birds throughout the movie. Then Joan, who's obviously some sort of high priestess of the cult, takes the crown off of the charlie statue which is being bowed to not only by the cult members but also the decapitated corpses of peter's grandmother and mother and places the crown on peter's head peter and payman are now one in the same we've corrected your first female body and
2: give you now this healthy male
0: host one especially creepy touch i actually didn't notice until this my fifth viewing of the movie is that When Peter walks up into the treehouse, the corpses of Annie and her mother are facing the statue of Charlie. But once the crown is put onto Peter's head, they're automatically turned around and they are now bowing to him. It's yet another example of these supernatural forces that were at play here. The movie ends with the cult hailing payment and the camera draws back to see Peter and the cult members in what looks like another miniature because the manipulation of this family is now complete. The control over their lives is gone. They are the playthings of a demonic entity. The grand family is dead and a demon has been reborn. following filming, Hereditary was prepped for a debut at the Sundance Film Festival in 2018. That was followed by showcases in film festivals like the South by Southwest Film Festival and the Overlook Film Festival in March and April of 2018. And because A24 was both the production company and the distributor of Hereditary, these film festival runs weren't like so many other films to attract high-priced buyers. They were to build buzz, and it worked. The trailer debuted in late January of 2018, which is when the movie came onto my radar for the first time and it was packed with effusive praise from the critics who had seen it in Sundance. I also think this is a really clever trailer because it places so much of the focus on the character of Charlie which when you see the final film makes her exit from the movie even more shocking and disturbing. It's a way to mislead the audience without making them feel cheated. I thought Hereditary looked interesting, but there were a couple of other A24 horror movies that had come out in the years before, namely The Witch and It Comes at Night, that had been similarly hyped by critics, but when I finally saw them, I admired, but weren't quite up my alley. Mara and I were lucky to see the movie early at an advanced screening on May 31st, 2018 in what I consider to be an ideal setting. It was a very intimate screening room. It only sat about 30 people, but it had a great sound system, so the mix was really vibrant. All of the different sounds were centered where they were supposed to be, and the audience for the film was absolutely wrapped. It was one of the best viewing experiences of my life, even though it was a small audience. Everybody reacted the way that you would want the audience to react to this movie, and I I was transfixed by this film. It clicked for me in a way that very, very few films do. The movie was released the next weekend, officially on June 8th, 2018, although I went on Thursday night, June 7th, 2018, again with a notepad so that I could scribble some notes for a spoiler review that I was doing alongside my co-critic at the time, Roth Cornett on Screen Junkies. That's one of the only times I've ever done that before I reviewed a movie, went back and watched it again, but I wanted to make sure that I had the details right and that it was just as good as I'd remembered, and on second viewing, it was even better.
2: The movie is called Hereditary, and if Toni Collette does not get an Oscar nomination for this movie, I riot.
0: Something is wrong. Uh, Something is horribly wrong if the awards uh, voters do not remember this performance Mm -hmm. at the end of the year. I would go on to name Hereditary my favorite film of 2018. It's still my favorite film of 2018. And according to my Letterbox diary, I've now viewed the film five times, and I could watch the film again right now. It has not lost any of its rewatchability for me. Hereditary ranked fourth place on its opening weekend behind the debut of Ocean's 8 and the continuing runs of Solo, A Star Wars Story, and Deadpool 2. It remains A24's biggest domestic opening weekend ever with just over $13.5 million, and it is still currently their highest grossing film worldwide and their second highest grossing film domestically, just a little bit behind the movie Lady Bird. Ultimately off of about a $10 million budget, Hereditary made $80 million worldwide, making it an unquestionable box office hit. But horror movies are tough to market, and when you have a movie that's opening to a wide audience, it didn't start with limited release, and that comes as hyped as Hereditary is, I guess it's inevitable that the mainstream audience didn't quite know what to make of it. On the movie's opening night, the polling service CinemaScore, which interviews people that see movies on their opening nights around the country, reported that the audience had given, on an A to F scale, Hereditary a D plus CinemaScore grade. Now, usually this means one of two things. Number one, the movie was terrible, or number two, the movie movie was not at all what the audience expected. And that's what it was with Hereditary. I think a lot of audience members went in expecting a conventional horror film and found a metaphor for familial grief and trauma. Now perhaps if A24 had opened the movie up on smaller screens and let it grow around the country then the word could have gotten out more. But I actually admire the fact that they stood behind the film and they said, no, we're putting this out nationwide and people can just catch up to it. And that's ultimately what happened. Yes, the mainstream audience didn't quite know what to make of it, but Hereditary won over a legion of fans. The movie was ecstatically reviewed by critics. It currently has an 89% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, meaning 89% of critics that saw the movie gave it a good grade. It also won a huge amount of fans in the Hollywood community itself. Here's no less than Martin Scorsese raving about the film to a crowd at New York's Lincoln Center. And these actors,
1: they're astounding. This dinner sequence is, uh, is re- remarkable. It yeah, reminds it is. me of the best of the horror of the Val Lewton films and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I don't say it's made the same way, but I, it's elevated up to the like, the Changeling. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah.
1: The Haunting. Uh, the yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The Innocence
0: shamefully hereditary was overlooked by nearly every major awards show and organization outside of a handful of critics awards despite the fact that i launched my own oscar campaign hashtag an oscar for tony ultimately it was fruitless and i think it just once again underscores that there is a massive genre bias particularly at the academy awards against horror comedy and most movies that don't fit into the oscar movie box because i think that tony collette's performance was not only one of the best performances of that year but one of the best performances i've seen in any movie ever i never wanted to be your mother why
2: i was scared
0: i didn't feel like a mother But Hereditary's real gold isn't in the awards that it didn't win, it's in how it's regarded by the people that see it. And I think that Hereditary is one of the best crafted, best acted, most effective horror movies of all time. Awards don't determine what becomes a classic. People do. And I think that future generations are going to look back at Hereditary and see that this was both a brilliant metaphor for familial trauma and inherited mental illness, and a chilling story of demonic possession. Balancing those two things is not an easy task, and Hereditary accomplishes that task Lawlessly, The Blu-ray of this movie does not have a director's commentary from Ari Aster, although I really would have loved that feature on this disc. It does have one featurette about the making of the film, and then a variety of deleted scenes. According to Ari Aster, the movie was actually about three hours long at one point, so this isn't every scene that was deleted. But it's interesting stuff if you like the movie. I do agree that it would have slowed down the pace of the movie even more, and as much as I love it, I think it's also very efficient getting to where it needs to be. But if you're a fan of the film and you want to see little bits and pieces added to different parts of the movie, then these deleted scenes are worth a look. And that wraps up my look at Hereditary and this phase of all my movies. As I mentioned, this will be the last show as part of my agreement with Skybound and the Schmodon Entertainment Network. I've had a great time working with them and I thank everybody who's worked on the show. My producers, Ian and Frank, uh, Doe and Christian, who helped to put this show together at the beginning. It really has been a pleasure to make this show and I'm glad that I'm going to be able to continue making it. A lot of people have said what's going to be next for all my movies? What form is the show going to take? How often is it going to come out? And the honest answer to that is that I don't quite know just yet. I'm going to take a little break from making the show just because I've been doing it weekly for just about a year now. And I hope that you see the fruits of all of the work and the research that I put into the show. It's a very fun show to put together, but it's also a very labor-intensive show to put together. So I'm going to take a little bit of a break, but I'm going to continue to make the show. Like I said, I don't quite know how often it's going to come out, if it's going to be every couple of weeks, if I'm going to produce batches of episodes and then release them you know several at a time in successive weeks those are things that I'm going to figure out as I take this little break from production but production will resume you'll be able to find out information about what's going to happen next with all my movies right here on this channel youtube.com slash Dan movies I hope you will continue this journey with the show because we're not even 10% into my movie collection and it keeps growing I said at the beginning of the show I think the show could probably go on forever maybe it will go on forever but for everybody that's watched the show so far that sent me uh, tweets and, and and posts on youtube and everything else about how much they enjoy the show i'm glad that you enjoy it i enjoy making it i look forward to making more of it with you i hope you'll continue on with me to the next phase of this show but for now it's time to go back on the show thank you so much for watching and i'll see you next time